All right, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to get into God's word, we are looking at Revelation chapter 6, 17, sorry. 6 was stuck in my head because I'm only going to go through verses 1 through 6. not going to take the whole chapter this week. I wanted to look a little bit larger at Babylon in the Bible. And so do a little back study in this one as well to give us a better understanding. I titled this study Mystery Babylon. We just take it right from verse 5, which says, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So Mystery Babylon. We're going to get a glimpse of Babylon, understand its history a little better perhaps, but also get a glimpse of the future that God has written concerning this mystery to us to this day and we'll get into it as we get into our study and it's a mystery because today babylon is in ruins it was attempted to be rebuilt by saddam hussein didn't work well for him but he thought that he was going to be conqueror of jerusalem in fact i remember when we went into the gulf war there and conquered one of the the area there, one of the palaces of Saddam, up on the uh, ceiling of this palace, kind of similar to what you might imagine seeing in Washington, the big dome and a painting on the top. And in Washington, you can go to the Capitol and you can look up and you can see George Washington uh, looking down with the angels, kind of watching. I wonder what he's thinking now of the United States, but... George, kind of the idea is, I have my eyes on you. I'm keeping a watch on you. But when you looked in this palace, it was Saddam riding on a white horse coming into the city of Jerusalem. That was his dream. One day the Antichrist will come and fulfill that dream. Perhaps he was thinking he was all that, but he was proved not to be. So we'll get a better understanding of this looking at chapter 17 and 18 in the book of Revelation. We're going to read about Babylon in both of these chapters. While chapter 17 deals much with religious and political Babylon, chapter 18 will look at their fall. And so we'll be looking at this, Lord willing, over the next few weeks. Back in chapter 14 of Revelation, in verse 8, speaking of the tribulation period, John wrote, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And as for drinking the wine of her fornication, the Antichrist, according to the word of God, will one day bring all the world's governments, along with all the world's religions, into this one world system. They'll all fall under his authority. Is that really as difficult to picture today as perhaps it was, look back 10, 20, 30 years ago? We can see this kind of move toward this one world government even this day that we find ourselves in. And here in this chapter, we're introduced to the woman of chapter 17 who symbolized this one world religion who's riding upon this scarlet beast that 
embodies this one world government. Both are called Babylon. And one might ask, if believers will be raptured out of this world before the tribulation, why, why should these events even matter to us? First of all, the Lord gave them to us in Scripture. The Word of God is inspired through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the man and woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for the work of ministry. So God, first of all, gave us this prophecy. And he even, if you remember back in Revelation chapter 1, he not only gave us this prophecy, but it came to us with this blessing. He said, blessed are those, in verse 3, blessed are those who reads, those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it for the time is near. So this concerns us, I believe, also because we see the nearing of this time. It's becoming clearer. Paul had wrote that right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And that cloudy mirror that we've been looking at is becoming clearer today than it has ever been in any other time in our lifetime. One of the reasons we should be concerned with the last day events, because Jesus said in Mark 13, 29, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near and at the doors. And so it's a preparation. These events of our time are preparing the world for the coming tribulation that only God knows the exact date. But we see the world is taking shape. It's drawing nearer and nearer. In fact, again, one of the authors of the Bible speaks about that the Lord's coming is nearer now than when we first believe. And that's true of every single day that we live. It is our duty as believers to study the word of God, even the hard passages that we might be effective witnesses of Christ. So today we're going to look at Mystery Babylon Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6. I broke it into three points. The great harlot, verses 1 and 2. A woman on a beast, 3 through 4. And Babylon the great, 5 through 6. I'm going to read, since it is such a short passage, I'll read verses 1 through 6 and give us the context. And then we'll ask God to bless the teaching of his word and get into our study. Revelation 17, verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, the name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. 
And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive from your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to just gain a little greater understanding of the truths that are given to us in your word. Help us, Lord, to, in the process of learning, Lord, that we would not only strengthen our own faith, but, Lord, that you would equip us, that we might help to strengthen others in their faith, to either bring them to faith in Jesus Christ or to help them grow. Father, it's our desire to be taught by you this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in verses 1 and 2, we have the great harlot, and he tells us there that she sits on many waters. One of the seven angels that had the seven bold judgments of God at this point, all the bold judgments, we looked at this last week in chapter 16, they have been poured out upon the earth. And having uh, accomplished their duty, now one of these angels comes over to John and tells John of the coming judgment of the great harlot. And he says specifically, who sits on many waters. The many waters speak of the kings of the earth who will commit fornication with her, along with the people who will drink of the wine of her fornication. So both the king, or kingdoms, we might say, kings along with their people in the many different nations of the earth. One day, kings in their kingdoms will, well, we might say, drink the cool egg of the religious Babylon. In Jeremiah 51, 25 and 26, the Lord spoke against Babylon physical Babylon at that time. He said, Behold, I am coming against you, O destroying mountain who destroys all the earth, says the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you, roll down from the rocks and make you a burnt mountain. They will not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, but you shall be desolate forever, says the Lord. And so prophecy against physical Babylon at that time. It's interesting. Verse 26, they will not take from you a stone for a corner or a stone for a foundation. Even to this day in Israel, they're discovering when cities in the nation of Israel and other parts of the Middle East, they were destroyed. The people would come in afterwards and use the stones to rebuild the city or to maybe build a house. You know, why quarry the stone if it's already cut and laid? All you had to do is Dig it up. And I I think of that because for years, those who were against the word of God, they always find negative things that they can attack the word of God with. Historically, they could not find any evidence of a man named Pilate except for in the Bible. And one day they were digging around in Israel and they turned a stone over that had Pilate's name written on it. And that stone today is in the museum in Jerusalem that they discovered that Pilate was out of office. They just took his plaque down, which was a stone, turned it around and used it in a wall somewhere else. They buried it. We don't want his name anymore. He he actually uh, was put out of office in disgrace. So it's not strange that they would erase the name. You get a new governor. Names are erased, right? They don't keep the old governor's signs up over the freeway to let you know. Do you remember that? That one? 
all of our governors here in Illinois often end up in jail anyways, but we had one that uh, put his name across the whole toll system. And I thought, that's a little much, buddy. But once he was gone, he was gone, right? Reformers, many Protestant teachers, have pointed toward the Roman Catholic Church as the identity of this woman. However, I just want us to understand that this false religious system predates the Catholic Church. We actually, I believe it ties all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 10. We find Nimrod's kingdom. And there in Genesis chapter 10, we learn of one of the cities that he's founded was Babel. And we also know of the Tower of Babel, that rebellion against God. Not only was the rebellion in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rebellion that caused the destruction of the earth by flood during the days of Noah. But after the days of Noah, here we have another rebellion that came up by a man named Nimrod. And our first thought when we read of Nimrod in Genesis 10:8, is this. He's described as a mighty one on the earth, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And maybe the first thought is a mighty hunter before the Lord, that this guy was a man of the field and, you know, he would pretty soon be sitting out in duck blinds out in the water or maybe up in a tree waiting for a nice buck to come by that this guy was a mighty hunter. But some have actually translated this, that Scripture was not in the Hebrew talking about animals, but men's souls. That he was not just going out to capture animals, which he may have very well done, but capture the souls of men. In Genesis 10, verses 10 through 12, it tells us that Nimrod built a kingdom that included some of the great cities like Babel, Assyria and Nineveh and God had instructed Noah and his sons when they came off the ark to be fruitful and to multiply but Nimrod decided that he would rule over men's souls control their souls according to the Bible Nimrod built an empire that included at least eight cities two of these Babel in the land of Shinar Nineveh in the land of Assyria are most familiar to us in the pages of scripture. There at Babel, we have the Tower of Babel, where mankind joined together to build a tower. Their thought was that the tower would reach into the heavens. Never thought about this before, but one of the commentators I was reading this week mentioned that perhaps the idea behind this is that we will build a tower that if God ever again floods the earth, that will exceed the mountains, that we will be safe from the destructive force of God. Now, I never pondered that. I always looked at the tower as a, one trying to usurp God's authority. Why would you want to get into the heavens if you didn't want to usurp God's authority? We do know that pyramids and ziggurats that we find in South America and, and also in Egypt as well, that they were places of worship, occultic worship, and precisely built to amazement to this day that without the technology that we have today, mankind looks at these 
ruins and they wonder how in the world they could even have been constructed and the stones and all that we discovered. But also think about the tower. This is something that I pondered. They wanted to build a tower that reached into the heavens, perhaps to protect them from a coming flood, which did not happen because God had promised Noah and his descendants not only to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, but in Genesis 9:11, never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. They exhausted themselves in great labor, perhaps trying to prevent a disaster that was never going to occur. All they needed to do is trust in the word of God. God said, I'm not going to flood the earth ever again with water. Fire, yes, but not water. So if you want to build a fireproof chamber, that's a whole nother topic. But so often in life, I think we go into great labor sometimes. Sometimes that great labor is trying to work our way into heaven, doing good works that God might accept us. When the Lord in Scripture tells us that's not how you get to heaven. You get to heaven by faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You get to heaven by the work that Jesus did upon the cross. It is because of his death, burial, and resurrection that salvation has been afforded to us today. So Babel was this location of the Tower of Babel. That was a place of rebellion against God. As we know, God confused the language of mankind at that time. And once the language was confused, the work on the tower stopped and the people scattered. It's interesting today that through computers, the technology that we have today, that we are coming back to a common language once again, at least with computers and such. And it seems to be feeding into the one world government and what mankind can do But so often what mankind does is oppose the word of God. Nineveh is a city that's known best to us, perhaps, first and foremost, by Jonah, the prophet of God, who did not want to be obedient to the word of God, who had called him to go to that great city of Nineveh in Jonah 1-2. God said to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it for the wickedness that come up before me. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire that was around for around 300 years where they ruled the earth at that time. The Assyrian kings, they would come against northern Israel and actually capture northern Israel, the ten tribes of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel is how the Bible would describe them. And ultimately absorb the people into their nation. But when Assyria came against the southern kingdom of Judah, the remaining two tribes of Israel, though they took several of the cities of Judah, God promised King Hezekiah in Isaiah 37, 33 through 35. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, speaking about the city of Jerusalem, nor shoot an arrow there nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same 
he shall return. He shall not come into the city, says the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Satan used, go back to Nimrod for a moment. Satan has used Nimrod and others like him throughout history to come against the Lord and his church. And yet during the tribulation, Babylon will come to its full power. The seduction of this woman sitting upon a scarlet beast like Babel of old, the nations will attempt to make a name for themselves. Moreover, like the Assyrian Empire, they will come against those who oppose them until they are either dead or absorbed into their culture. That's what Assyria did. Isaiah 37, 18 and 19, historic Assyria. So Hezekiah praying to the Lord saying, Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their land and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. So the king rightly understood why Assyria could have victory over this non-believing pagan cultures. But we find again this false religious system being described as the great harlot or great prostitute who sits on many waters. Jeremiah prophesied concerning the fall of Babylon, saying, Jeremiah 51:13, O you which dwells by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come in the measure of your covetousness. These many waters often referring to in Scripture as it says in Revelation 17:15, we'll look at this a little more next week, but Revelation 17:15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues. She sits on many waters, sits on many kingdoms, many nations, peoples and tongues. Today in this world we have a strong call of unity. The unity of all religions is also being called upon by many in the world that we would be one in the world, not to contend or not to think that Christianity is any better than any other religion on the earth, that there are many paths that lead to God. That's a common thing that we hear in our world today. It's not what the Bible teaches and if we are to side with what the world is teaching, then we have to set aside the word of God and to negate what God's word teaches us. Today, there is this quest that one day the great harlot will succeed in fulfilling, bringing all the world to worship in this spiritual and religious kingdom of Babylon. The kings of the earth committed fornication, and we find that the influence of the woman She's actually had this influence throughout Earth's history. Fornication comes from the Greek word pornea, and it basically means any unlawful sexual activity. Porne is the Greek word that's referred to as harlots here in our text. And it, it refers to a woman who sells her body for sexual use. According to the Bible, there is lawful and unlawful sexual conduct, lawful Sexual conduct is found in the bounds of marriage. Anything outside of the bounds of marriage is unlawful. 
But here, figuratively, it refers to Israel's apostasy from God and also the world's apostasy from God as well. Israel was often found in this characterization in the Old Testament. God considered the nation of Israel his bride, according to the Bible. Their conduct with him was a marriage contract that he had made through the covenant that he had passed on from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the laws of Moses that was given to the nation of Israel. In the book of Hosea, Hosea became this type of God the Father while his wife, who he took a wife from the prostitutes, he did it according to the word of God. His wife, Gomer, symbolized Israel and their continued holotry against the Lord, their spiritual adultery against God. In the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. And Paul encourages the Lord's bride regarding the things that we find in this world in Ephesians 5.3, saying that fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as is fitting for the saints. So we're to conduct ourselves as the bride of Christ. I tell you that Lily expects me as her husband to conduct myself at all times as the husband of Lily. And I also expect Lily to conduct herself as my wife. Therefore, you might be pleased about this, but we don't date other people. (laughs) Yeah, I saw Pastor John. He was out with another woman. That would not look good, right? We conduct ourselves as belonging to one another. We do belong to one another. There is a contract that we have made in the Old Testament. That contract was the covenant that Israel made with God. In the New Testament, that contract is the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. We are his bride and we are to conduct ourselves as the bride of Christ. And although there are many forms of spiritual fornication that is sadly found in the church today, when Jesus Christ comes back for his church, raptures us out, when he takes those who are true to him into heaven with him, all that will remain will be the unbelieving who call themselves Christians, who perhaps sit in churches. Much like the wheat and the tares, Jesus will separate the wheat from the tares at the rapture and all that will remain. And will be the unbelieving church at that time, others who do not believe in the world, but um, there will be those who come to faith, maybe some immediately afterwards. They'll realize what had taken place, and there's like, man, I'm too late. They'll realize and know that the tribulation is upon them. The Bible teaches about a multitude of people who come to faith during the tribulation, but there'll be a point in time where the Lord will take his church out. And my point here is that then it will not be a difficult thing for some false religious system to come and to form a religious system that all the world comes together to worship. If there's no true believers, then what would stand in the way? Also, I believe that the Holy Spirit has that impact where he will be taking out the restraining of the Holy Spirit will also be removed at that time. But Satan, 
he's going to build this false religious system. I believe he's always at work doing so. Three times Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. In John 12:31, John 14:30, John 16:11. In the book of Revelation, we read regarding Satan in chapter 12 verse 9 that he is the great dragon who was cast out of heaven, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He deceives the whole world. He is a deceiver, as we read there in Revelation 12:9, But also in Revelation 22 and 3, the Bible says that he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. So this has not happened yet. So Satan is busy about deceiving the nations, sitting on many waters. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And although we see a formation of these things on the horizon, the Holy Spirit's work within the church today has this restraining effect upon Satan and his great harlot, Babylon. Once the church is removed, the great harlot will take advantage of this opportunity and make the kings of the earth to commit fornication with her. Second Thessalonians 2 verses 6 and 7 tells us, For the mystery of the lawless one is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So right now, the Antichrist, we could say, the lawless one, he's being restrained by the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church today. But once the rapture takes place, once the restrainer is no longer there to restrain, then the lawless one will go forth to deceive the whole world. Not only the kings of the earth, but the inhabitants of the earth, they're made drunk, we discover. The past, present, future influence of this false religious system has been, will be great. Remember, I tied it all the way back to Nimrod. There's always been some type of false uh, battling against the truth of God's word throughout mankind's history. Once Adam and Eve fell there in the garden. In chapter 19, John records that the great harlot corrupted the earth with her fornication, Revelation 19.2. She corrupted the whole earth. And this is easy for us to envision today uh, because of media, whether print, broadcast, internet. It's continually shaping the aspects of our lives. And just think about it. Hitler used propaganda in his day to lead his nation to attempt world supremacy. And I'm going to read a little bit about what he did back then. Just think how easy it would be for us and the technology that we have today. If he was able to accomplish this in the 1930s and 40s, 
how much more today. The Nazi government had total control over men, women, youth, newspapers, radio, arts, books, music, universities, schools, police, army, law, courts, and religion. In other words, they controlled every aspect of life in Germany. Furthermore, Joseph Goebbels, I know I said that name wrong, but he was one of Hitler's most devoted associates, was elected as the Reich Minister of Propaganda, and he held that position from 1933 to 1945. To control every part of German life, the Nazi party had to persuade people to believe that Hitler had the answers to all their problems. The Nazi party used terror on one hand and propaganda on the other. The Nazi party used propaganda to influence the German people's thoughts and opinions. Propaganda was used to bring most Germans together for a common goal to stand together against the enemies of the Nazi party. That's what they did back in the 1930s. They used media and force. Let me think. Have we seen any examples of media being used over the last, I don't know, like forever, right? It's always been, been used, but it's so blatant now that it's undeniable. And then, hey, if they don't like your post, social media, a brand new thing, I'll just remove it. So they have a one-side narrative. And everyone else, by force, are told to submit. One day the Antichrist will achieve what Nimrod, Hitler, and others have tried to accomplish. Thankfully, the Antichrist's reign will be limited to seven years. And it will be followed by the glorious millennial reign of Christ. The time is near, but also it will be a short time. But during that short time, all hell will break loose upon this earth. And we see the formation of these things today. The great harlot will deceive the whole world to drink the wine of her fornication. The woman on the beast, verses 3 and 4. I'll read it again since we've been a while, since we read the text. So he carried me away into the wilderness by the Spirit. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy, Having seven heads and ten horns, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. It stood out to me that John was shown this woman. He was carried away into the wilderness. It might remind us of Israel's 40 years of wilderness wanderings. It was because of their disobedience that they spent that 40 years in the wilderness. And just think about this. The first generation of the nation of Israel that had faith to come out of Egypt did not have faith to enter in to the promised land. They had faith to get out, but not to enter in. And for their disobedience, that first generation, they were not allowed to enter in but died there in the wilderness. Also, the wilderness reminded me of Jesus. When the Bible tells us, I think it's amazing how Mark words this, in Mark 1, 12 and 13, after Jesus was baptized, 
Mark says, immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. But what really, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And I I believe to this day that sometimes the Spirit drives us perhaps into areas we would rather not go. It's like, Lord, I I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. And the Lord can drive us sometimes. Sometimes gently. Sometimes a spiritual nudge here and there. Other times he drives us into areas we might not want to go. But there in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by Satan. And we find once again, Satan is in the wilderness, now tempting the world through the great harlot, Babylon. The scarlet beast, John said, the great harlot was sitting on this scarlet beast. The beast was introduced to us in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10 in verse 6. John says, I saw the beast open his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Some believe that scarlet is the symbol of the glory of the world. Others have noted that when we first saw the beast in chapter 13, the beast was not described with color. So some have connected the scarlet color of this beast to be having been stained with the blood of the saints. I'm not sure if either one, whether scarlet is the symbol of the glory of the world or scarlet is because the beast was stained with the blood of the saints. Possible. I do know that scarlet is an interesting word study in Bible. We find that Zerah's wrist was tied with a scarlet cord in Genesis 38, verses 28 and 30. One of the twin brothers born, his hand coming first out, and they tied a scarlet cord around his wrist. The tabernacle having colors of blue, purple, and scarlet, Exodus 26, 1. Rahab hung a scarlet cord outside her window there in Jericho that she might not be put to death with the others in her city, Joshua 2.18. Also, scarlet was a mark of prosperity in 2 Samuel 1.24, in Proverbs 31.21. And this actually fits very well if the world is going to be attracted to the woman on the beast who is wearing scarlet This idea of prosperity, people go after prosperity, right? Scarlet also describes the color of our sins in Isaiah 1.18. Scarlet was also the color of the robe that Jesus wore before he was put on the cross. Matthew 27.28. She was arrayed and adorned. This harlot, the garments that she had, Arrayed in scarlet and purple, gold, precious stones and pearls, her adornment is similar to that of many of the religious trappings that we find in some of the high churches today. Purple, scarlet, gold, precious stones, pearls can represent beauty and glory, but also they can represent and will at this time a false religious system that prostitutes the truth of God 
to the whole world. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He looks like he's all good, but he's a deceiver, and we must never forget that. In her hand was a golden cup, and this cup that is beautiful to the world, God sees it as detestable. God sees it filled with abominations, with filthiness of her fornication. Jesus told the Pharisees, and he used the cup as an illustration. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, many of them, they looked so good to the people. On the outside, they looked like what every Jewish man and woman should strive to be, walking in their conduct toward God, making sure they tithe even on the spices that they had, praying in public, letting people see what they were doing. They wore the right clothing. They had wealth. And people looked up to them as their religious leaders and rulers. Yet Jesus said in Matthew 23 concerning the Pharisees and the scribes, Matthew 23, 25, and 26, and he used the cup as an illustration. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. They make themselves look good on the outside, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside of them will also be clean. So the cup, she held a cup in her hand. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. And the unbelievers at that time, they will drink of the cup from this woman who sits on the beast. In her hand is this golden cup. God sees it filled with abominations, fills with the filthiness of her fornication. And the world will desire to drink from that cup. Babylon the Great, verses 5 through 6, he continues. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And then I saw her and marveled with great amazement. So mystery, Babylon the Great, perhaps the mystery lies in how the world is seduced to worship the beast and the image of the beast and to turn away from the loving God who has created us, the Father who has given us all things, life, and offers eternal life to us. In reality, the world will turn to worship this woman who is the mother of all harlots. In 1 John 5:19, John tells us, We know we are of God, for the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world will go after her. And even to this day, the whole world goes after the false religious systems of this world. She is called the mother of all harlots, the abominations of the earth. Now, mother, now let me see. This is hard for people in the 21st century to rightly understand what a mother is today. I'm going to take us back to the Greek. A mother, in the Greek, one's biological or adopted female 
parents. I just want to make a clear point on that today. Mother, female, parents. One of the worst things that I saw this year, I saw a lot of bad things, but this just disgusting, but also how blind people are. A gay couple, I don't know if gay is the right word. They have 112 different terminologies, so it's hard to get them all right. But it was two guys, one who was the wife, one who was the husband. They adopted a child, and the guy who was the wife was on video attempting to breastfeed the child. And it's just like, what's wrong with you? And said, don't worry, we have other supplements of course, the child would die because a man cannot do this. Poor child, what a twisted world that we have. That was just an image that just, oh man, so blind this world is. A mother, let's go back to scripture, and that's what's good. And when we talk with people who are so twisted, well, the Bible says we have to keep going back to the word of God. Let it be our foundation. In the Greek, they understood it. A biological adopted female parent. Either she gave birth or adopted the child, but still, that's mom, female. Generally, though, a parent, ancestor, a city, the mother city, we might say, a nation, she is the source of wickedness and abomination. She's the source. She's the mother of these things. It's interesting to me also in this world today that guys are being like, diminished, right? Women. And even when they talk about evolutionary process and they will say and point to a region in Africa where all humanity came some billions of years ago, you know how they keep changing the narrative, but they talk about one common ancestor. They always talk about the mother. The Bible talks about a mother, mother of all things, mother of the source of wickedness, abominations. Abomination, a a foul, a detestable thing. In the Old Testament, often referred to idolatry or idols. Satan always uses idolatry to take people's focus away from that which is true. And this takes us back to the origins of Babylon again, which was a place that denounced the true and living God. In Revelation 18 and 19, we see that there are two different views regarding the mother of all harlots. Two different views that we get from Revelation 18 and 19. From the world's perspective, when this mother is destroyed by God, Revelation 18 9 tells us the kings of the earth who committed fornication lived luxuriously with her, will weep and lament for her while they see the smoke of her burning. The world's perspective, when this mother of all harlots is destroyed, the world will weep because she has been destroyed. But from God's perspective, heaven's perspective, Revelation 19, verses 1 through 3, it says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her, 
Again, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The world looks at the destruction, the coming destruction of this great harlot, and they weep. Heaven rejoices. We should be on the rejoicing side of these things. Now, the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. At first, I treated the blood of the saints and martyrs. At first, I was just thinking one and the same. And then I was thinking, what if the Lord intends distinction here? And I believe he does. We do read about the saints during the tribulation period, but it also reminded me of the blood of the saints, including all those believers who died in their faith prior to the time of Christ, beginning with Abel. As Jesus said in Luke 11, verses 49 through 51, Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required at this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. The God never forgets the blood of the saints, those who look forward to the Messiah's coming, the messianic promises of God, but also the blood of the martyrs reminds us and specifically the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now we can tie this all the way back to Stephen, the church's first martyr, and will continue until the end of the tribulation period. Acts 7, verse 59 through 60 says, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, all these seen in our text as the woman being drunk with the blood, just the attack against the church. Do you know to this day that there is a continued attack against the church? And as we drift towards socialism, one of the troubles that they have here in the United States, and we have some type of socialism coming into shape, and we pray that it doesn't happen, but, man, there are so many who desire it to happen. We hope that, you know, the election of 2022-2024 can change the course of this nation once again. But as I look at the next generation coming up after us, I think... Even if we slow it down, it's only a matter of time. Prophecy will be fulfilled in Scripture. There will be a one-world government. One of the issues that a one-world government has is the worship of Jesus Christ. The church has to be dealt with. And we have seen over the last year and a half, even in Western society, Canada, the United States, other parts of Europe, that... For the first time, government coming against churches, even gathering and meeting together. John saw Mystery Babylon. He marveled with great amazement. In Jeremiah 51, 7, the prophet said, Babylon was the golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, and therefore the nations are deranged. So John marveled. 
but he didn't need to. Revelation 17, 8 says, And all those who dwelt on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. All those on the earth, the Bible tells us, they will marvel. But who? Those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. John marveled, but he didn't need to because John's name was written in the Lamb's book of life. We may marvel, but sometimes we shouldn't. Because we need to know that our names, as believers in Jesus Christ, our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. And those whose names are written in the book of life need not marvel over the woman or the beast upon which she rides. Today we've seen heaven's view of this great deception that's coming upon our world through the great harlot and the scarlet beast upon which she will ride. The Bible clearly teaches of a, a coming one-world religion and one-world government. In the world's eyes, the Antichrist government will be arrayed with beauty, with gold, with precious stones and pearls. They will want to drink from that golden cup. However, from God's perspective, his government will be seen as fornication. It will be found in a wilderness it will be blasphemous, full of abominations and filthiness. But thankfully, those whose names are written in the book of life need not marvel because their names have been secured in heaven. Christ our Savior. Let's go ahead and stand. Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us, for the truths that are found in it. I pray, Father, that... We do live in difficult and confusing times. And even the church, Lord, and people within the church, they are being swept up into the events of our day. Even now, Lord, we're concerned with uh, seeing prices increased in our nation, seeing shelves empty in our stores, uh, the talk of with winter coming, uh, gas uh, heating prices, for our homes in the winter, that they could increase some 50%. Lord, there's definitely things to be concerned about in our world today, not even to speak of all the madness surrounding um, the pandemic that we've been dealing with with well over a year now, year and a half plus. Father, there's a lot of things to marvel at in this world. We don't understand so many things. Help us to know, Lord, that we belong to you. That, Lord Jesus, that in you we can have peace, that in you we have hope, that in you is our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to skip the Believe, Receive, Grow, and Go today. I just looked at my watch, being gracious. But I do want to ask if you're listening on the radio or perhaps through social media. If you have questions regarding faith, if you have a prayer need, please reach out to us. You can do so at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. This week we sent out a prayer request uh, Thursday, I believe, for a young boy that had a tumor, that they did emergency surgery 
on uh, Thursday. It was a pretty long surgery. And he came through the surgery well. They're now in the watching, making sure that basically all his motor skills, speech, everything functions well since, you know, they're doing surgery around the brain, right? So continue to pray for the Samanskis. Is that correct? I said it wrong yesterday at men's breakfast. Seth, the young boy, nine years old, that's so much unreal. I said earlier, when we have things happen to the children, it's so hard to watch children go through these things. We don't want to see anything bad happen to anyone when it's a child. It makes us want to pray even more. So God answers prayer. Right now he's doing well, but they're still observing and as he recovers and heals. Keep that in your prayers this week. Again, if you have prayer requests, cclv at comcast.net. If you have questions regarding our church, cclv.org, cclv.org. Let me slip over to my guitar and we'll close out in worship.